0: Live from Lucerne and Brussels, it's ZN, ZN Live. Live. That's right. We are very excited today to have a special guest all the way from Switzerland, Uchana Zigomo. He is an expert at communication with over 20 years working across a range of different uh, areas. He's focused on healthcare communication. He's with MSD right now, and he's got extensive experience across a number of different areas very interesting initiatives, some of them we're going to talk about, but I wanna kind of start with a big topic that everybody has been affected by, which is of course, vaccines and misinformation. Um, now, I know that you're aware of the topic, obviously something that, that touches everyone in particular healthcare communication professionals. And you know what I wanna start with is the, 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 the basic question, do you think that things have gotten worse since COVID with misinformation Or in some way, are they getting better with all the measures, all the initiatives that institutions and companies have taken us? Uh, Where do we think we are now, and and where are we heading?
1: Thanks a lot, Phil. I am excited. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm really thrilled to be uh, part of ZNLive for the very first time. So uh, looking forward to a wonderful conversation. Um, And you start with a loaded question, right? Um, A really big issue, and I think one that um, has pretty much overtaken our lives for the past three years. The first part I'd say to your question is, I think it's a little bit of both. I think on uh, the one hand, misinformation definitely got worse during COVID, right? Because um, I think uh, uh, there was a lot of hesitancy towards vaccination. A lot of people felt um, they couldn't trust, you know, a lot of the information that they were getting. And there was a lot of uncertainty. um, Also because a lot of the vaccines that we saw were coming out for the first time and very, very quickly. So it's a little bit understandable why people would be skeptical But on the other hand, I think a lot has been done to try and um, address misinformation. What we've seen with social media is that um, we've just become more attuned to the fact that misinformation is there. I can't imagine that before the dawn of social media, people were just sitting at home and having no conversation about pediatric vaccines that have been there for decades and decades. It's been there. People have been talking about this. People have been uncertain and distrustful. But um, we're just kind of more. We're seeing it more now because it's in our hands. It's in our mobiles every single day, and I'm really thrilled that you know organizations like Facebook, for example, have really taken to task. They're really acting to prevent misinformation, um, to provide the right information, and working together with the entire healthcare community, um, including you know NGO partners, the WHO. So people are taking this very seriously. Um, whether we're getting whether it's getting worse or not, I think it'll get better because we're not seeing as much um, regarding COVID, but misinformation remains a big, big issue of concern. I think the WHO has said it's one of the top 10 threats to global health, um, and especially when it comes to vaccines. So I think we should definitely be taking this seriously.
0: Yeah, it's been a a huge challenge for communicators and and for institutions. Um, And I think, you know, it's it's very inconsistent. Uh, Organizations, Mm -hmm. social media uh, have have been working on improving their rules, but then, I think you know, we, we see Twitter dropping a lot of their previous uh, rules on restricted uh, communication. So it, it is a challenge, I think, every day. Uh, now, reaching your audience through social channels and through any kind of uh, channel can be very difficult, especially when you're looking at communication around the world. And I think you've got a very broad and global experience working across different countries, uh, different continents. Uh, and I'd like to, 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 to hear a, a little bit, how do you adjust, you know, how do you think people should adjust their communication to different communities, different audiences, uh, because, of course, you don't have a one-size-fits-all. So what are your thoughts on how to adjust between different countries, different continents, different cultural, uh, different regions?
1: Yeah, yeah. you know, you're absolutely right. The first thing I'd say is uh, just to acknowledge that you absolutely have to, right? It's something that you have to do. Communication is local. Um, if you speak to me in my indigenous language, which is Shona from Zimbabwe, I understand you much better than I understand um, English or, as we were speaking about earlier, German, for example. Um, but This is important. Um, You cannot communicate without relevance, and what's most relevant is always local. I think that, you know, I was talking earlier about how community is going to be one of the top trends that I think we will see, coming back to going back to local messages. I work across Eastern Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. You can imagine it could be no more different between Eastern Europe, the Middle Eastern Africa, um, three continents, and completely different audiences. And making sure that all of the information, all of the content that we're putting out is relevant, all the way from the demographics to how we communicate and the messaging, um, is very, very important, right? And it's something that we actively ensure that um, as much as our messages are, you know, relating uh, to a broad range of healthcare issues. People can always relate to something that's local, right? Um, And that helps them to understand it from uh, the perspective that they see on a day-to-day basis. Um, People always tell me about, um, I'm a former news hack. I used to work in in the media. And um, working in international news, people would always say, you know, I don't really care that much about what's happening in this part of the world or that part of the world. I really want to know what's happening next to where I live. Um, So I've tried to bring that back into communications. How do we get people um, to relate to things uh, and to relate to information and to relate to healthcare practices and behaviors where they live in terms of what's possible?
0: Yeah, I think it's a very good point. And having a hyper-local strategy uh, is critical. But the the interesting thing is that with with this fabric of of social networks, you have global conversations affecting hyper-local conversations at the same time. In a, in a pretty unpredictable way, uh, I'm going to be speaking later in February at the um, International Pediatric Association in India, which has a, a global conversation, which is targeting the whole world. And, and in some of my conversations with, with the people preparing this, they were saying, look, a lot of people there don't really want to hear the European-US narrative because honestly, it's very different in each different country uh, and in each different region. So. Uh, and I think you, you point this out very, very well. Uh, you know, if you want to reach certain communities in India, uh, in different regions, they all have their local language, they all have their different cultures, different uh, access to media and to mobile technology. Um, so, how do you kind of map out your different target audiences to make sure you're not applying a kind of cookie cutter approach, saying, "Okay, we're going to do a big campaign here and a big campaign there with lots of you know, big statements from research papers but how do you get really local especially in communities which are hard to reach through traditional media and through you know that 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 more global media that that doesn't reach a lot of those communities yeah, it's, it's a number of
1: things. It's a number of things. And I think one of the first things is starting to think about what outcome do we want to have, right? What do we want people to think, feel, or do with the information that we're giving them, right? That's the starting point. And once we have that, then we think about, okay, audience. I know in communication, we always say it starts with audience, but it really starts with what is the outcome that we want to have? Um, with the people that we want to reach. We want to reach a community of young women in the Middle East in a specific country. We could go down as granular as that, and we really want them to you know um change a particular behavior we want them to start screening more for cervical cancer or we want them to you know start vaccinating their children more if they are mothers of young of young babies um all of those things come into that context and then once we have that we come up with a plan of um what is the messaging that we want to address and again i come back to the messaging becomes really really local um you know speaking to people for uh, really long periods of time, um, you know, and consist- consistently bombarding them with information um, that is coming from global agencies, a lot of people can't relate to that. But channels then become very, very important. There are people, um, as you mentioned, who don't have daily access to the internet. They don't have uh, you know, unlimited data and um, access to information. So sometimes you have to really get on the ground. You can partner with organizations that do behavior change communications on the ground they literally go door to door in communities they use community peer educators peer facilitators Um, you know i was sharing earlier about a fantastic campaign called conquering cancer um, that captured documentaries and stories of survivors of cervical cancer um, and cancer and these were screened in schools you know they did small group and community screenings so it's really finding the best approach that will reach the audiences that you want to reach we talk a lot about africa because in many cases this is where we have a lot of underserved information um, um, communities when it comes to healthcare and that approach has to be different but we also see that there are growing trends when it comes to their access to information access to mobile devices so there are ways that we can reach them now that you couldn't reach them 10 years ago
2: so that's fascinating thank you much I, I have a question about gender because you read a lot about how medicine is developed tested and tested only on men, or mostly on men, especially in the past, but I think it might still be the case to a large extent now. Not just only on men, but also only on white men, uh, for example. Uh, is that still the case? Is that changing? Uh, is it safe for me, other women, uh, to take the meds? Or because you hear a lot about things that not being safe for women or not being safe for women who breastfeed. Often, when you read meds, it says it's not actually safe if you are breastfeeding, or like it's just not. I understand it's difficult to test, but yeah. To what extent is it safe? Uh, are are is are things changing so that uh, you know we're not no longer seeing men as the 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 human <laughs> and women as sort of a, the secondary citizen? Yeah, right?
1: yeah, absolutely. So that's a really really good question, um, and I think you know. On the one hand, there's a scientific element to this. And it's the last thing that you spoke about. Um, There are hormonal issues when it comes to women. There are a lot more factors that would um, remove women from, you know, the pool of people who would have clinical trials run. You know, if you are breastfeeding, if you are pregnant. And this is part of the reason why the trend that you're speaking about, it was always predominantly men. I think what's changing is a growing awareness among female audiences of the need to participate, right? Um, I think People, you know, scientists and researchers in, in particular um, are very attuned and very um, you know focused on making sure that it's always about safety more than anything else. Um, the safety of any medicine, no one wants to participate in a clinical trial if they feel like they're going to be a guinea pig or if they feel like something, something could go wrong. And this is why it's important to make sure that people get the right information, accurate information, and the proper scientific information. So you are right that um you know and i won't even say historically because i think it's still correct today but there is a reason for it and i think it's just making sure that um as we continue to develop medicines and vaccines and, and, and healthcare products in general that the involvement of women um continues to grow and i think that's something that needs to continue uh awareness is important it's not to say that women should you know uh, participate less in clinical trials they should just be aware of what it, What they're going into, right? And what the risks are and what the opportunities are. Um, But we cannot have broader access to new medicines if we don't balance out the gender issue.
2: So yeah. when, when, after the COVID uh, nineteen vaccine was released, there were a lot of stories, and I don't know to what extent there were stories, to what extent there were facts, and I don't, I don't know if there were any formal communication ever went out, but that there were problems with menstruation and so on, right? Like that a lot of people reported a break in, in you know, a stop, or and that that, that it returned. Uh, is that because it wasn't tested? Is it not even true? Is it like, and and, and do you feel that a more formal response should follow? When when such stories pop up in the uh, in the news or in uh, in people's societies,
1: yeah, I think that um, you know I, one of you we were talking about about books earlier. I loved a book by um, Professor Gossin called uh, Factfulness, um, and it talks about how you know a lot of information that goes out there is misinformation, um, and because it's on the it seems to be on the basis of scientific facts, sometimes people believe it. I think that um, you know it's it's definitely important that people have the right scientific basis. Um, there's no doubt that no one should be participating in any kind of um, healthcare trial if they have not contacted their doctor first, right? If you if you have any conditions, um, so I think you know what I'd say is um, yes, there does definitely need to be formal communication um, so that people are aware. Uh, But I do think that there was, like we reported, a lot of misinformation when it came to um, COVID in particular, right? Um, And especially because there was a lot of fear mongering, in my opinion, um, because people did not know what the world was facing. Um, And this happened for, I'd probably say two of the three years of COVID. Um, The situation was evolving very quickly and we were trying to get information. as it was coming in, as trials were being conducted for the medicines that were being developed. So it's something that normally takes time.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, it's it's very interesting, uh, th- th- this this topic about science. Uh, in fact, there was the Edelman Barometer Survey that we was released uh, recently, and it said that, you know, people's trust in scientists has actually gone up uh, quite a bit. And, and so I think that, that's a kind of reassuring uh, I think story in this uh, pretty polarized world with the infodemic and uh, misinformation. So people want to find scientific information. I think the real challenge is that, you know, it's not enough to have somebody saying, I'm a scientist, trust me, this is the information. You need to make a critical judgment. And I think that requires a lot of education that we, you know, I'm talking about myself, uh, people uh, who are not necessarily scientifically trained to be able to evaluate these rumors and these stories. And you know one of the phenomena that I observed in India was WhatsApp uh, is a very powerful tool to spread information and misinformation. So basically people are constantly sharing stories on groups on WhatsApp. and depending on who shares it, you the, 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 it has more authority. So people will share a video. it can be a video that you know, can be misinformation. And the problem is very hard to filter it because the video comes with with very little context. So I think yeah. we have a real challenge of how do we filter information that comes at us, uh, like the questions that we are all asking. You know, how does how can how can we find out where to get reliable information on those rumors? And I would I would come to you with a, with a question, which is you know how do you As an individual, what what do you do to filter your questions? Um, you know, what what sources do you use? And what do you recommend that people and and especially communicators should do to improve the quality of this information?
1: Yeah. So that's a good point on credibility. I I think the credibility of healthcare information is is absolutely critical. If people are going to make decisions um, that affect themselves, that affect their children, that affect their lives. Um, on the basis of this information that we get them. I am a firm believer in, you know, I think it's journalism 101, always go with um, the the approved verifiable sources for in healthcare information. So sources like the WHO, sources like um, the CDC, the healthcare authority in any country is the best place to get the most accurate information. Um, And the good thing is even when they're wrong, they will still come back and they will always formally let people know that there was a, you know, um, um, uh, this is what we understood based on the information that we had uh, at that given time. But at least you can always go back to that. And it's a verifiable source. Um, You know, healthcare practitioners. and, And this was an area that got a little bit shaky as well during the COVID era because we saw a lot of healthcare practitioners that were hesitant, for example, when it came to vaccination or that were also, you know, Putting emotional information that didn't have scientific basis. So I would always say, you know, trust the the, the legitimate, credible healthcare sources, the big organizations, because they have got numerous gatekeeping processes. Right. Um, by the time information comes to the public, it has gone through a number of different checks. Um, it has gone through, uh, you know, data cleaning processes. Um, so it's it's. It's very difficult for random information regarding people's health to be passed out there. And this is why I say keep to the credible sources, um, engage with you know uh, healthcare regulators because um, they try. And as difficult as it is, Um, I appreciate the effort that goes into making sure that people have the right information. Um, We as pharmaceutical organizations also rely heavily on those kinds of organizations because they vet not just our own um, um, activities, but, you know, for the whole industry uh, and the whole healthcare industry, not just pharmaceuticals. So it's important.
0: Yeah, so we have Daniel saying, hello guys, happy Friday. And Rezus asking whether we can use AI to help fight misinformation. Um, And I think it's interesting, you know, we've seen some initiatives with chatbots trying to answer questions. Um, And I'm wondering whether you think perhaps this technology, I'm sure it has to be managed properly, that can help us to kind of filter uh, the the things because everybody doesn't know where to go on WHO. So ideally, you'd want to be able to go to a place to say, hey, I, I have this question about this. Please give me an answer with sources and with background so do do you think this this might help because i mean it's coming quite quickly and it's already having a big impact on a lot of areas
1: i think we're at the point where um we need to make sure we're keeping the options as open as possible right and i think it's something that's definitely growing within healthcare i don't think we're there yet uh you know when it comes to ai in healthcare specifically i think there you know areas like tech like finance where it has moved much much faster Um, than in the healthcare sector. But I think solutions like the one you're talking about can definitely help. Um, I I think there's always going to be a trust issue, right? And and this is why I say it's going to take time when it comes to healthcare information. Um, When somebody realizes that they're getting their healthcare information through a chatbot, um, there's kind of a a moment where they stop and they're like, just hang on a second, right? And we have to make sure that, um, you know, you have real people who are able to pick up a phone and answer a legitimate question, that somebody might have because these are serious issues right what people put into their bodies is always a serious issue
0: yeah i think i think it's gonna be a, a huge challenge and and you know we're still very much at early days of of, of dealing with this from yeah. uh, person from, from individuals as well as organizations uh now let, let's uh, have a few recommendations So, Mucena, you, what is your recommendation to our viewers?
1: So, my recommendation is a fantastic book called Five Stars, right? Uh, the communication secrets to get from good to great. I have two. Um, and this is a fantastic book if you want to learn the power of storytelling. And I love that it really starts from you know um, all the day, days back in the time of Aristotle and, and neuroscience and how it affects how people receive information. Uh, what I love that it says is you know um, on the power of persuasion because to the point that we were just speaking about on data, persuasion is always important, especially in the era where everything is now AI data. To have a real person who can persuade people um, with the benefit of data is always going to be helpful and my second recommendation is uh, a life-changing book that i read the 5 a.m club um, i think during the covid era i struggled a lot like many of us to find time to be able to do the things that i wanted to do um, so getting up a couple of hours earlier in the day is a huge differentiator and it can help a lot so that those are my two recommendations so you've been doing the
0: waking up at 5 a.m for how long it has actually been uh, two years now wow well, I, I think that's a, that's a challenge for everyone who wants to embrace that lifestyle. Um, Lyra, are you ready for your, for your five a.m. challenge? And what is your recommendation?
2: I mean, I wake up every morning at quarter past six, uh, although not on the weekends, just during the week. Um, but I go to bed at midnight, so if I go to bed at, get up any earlier, then I won't get yeah. enough sleep. So I think I think I'm doing pretty good. Um, so I'm, I'm proud of myself as it is, but um, I'm not going to consider it. I feel okay with my lifestyle, but thank you. <laughs> good, good ideas. I will read that other book though. That sounds very good. Um, I have two recommendations. First of all, I think you've probably all heard of it, but if you haven't, I just have to share it with you, which is that there is a bot. Uh, I, I'm a big fan, as you all know, from, for the, as some of you know, for, uh, about AI. And there is a, there is now the possibility to talk to Socrates. And to Jesus, and to a whole bunch of people. So I think that's amazing. What made me cry this week is the idea, and that's not far, very far out, that you can upload all the data you have of a person, and that you can then—I'm gonna cry again—you can then talk with them after after they're dead, right? So you know, your parents, for example. That's why you know my my parents are a little older. So you upload. Phil knows how I'm with dead. That's a bit of. Sensitive issue, but so you can upload all the data, the WhatsApp conversations, and the and the the books that they've written, and the articles, and and their voice. So you can ask your father. Okay, I'm going to stop. But Socrates, that's interesting. So and and they've asked Socrates. They've asked, for example, Shakespeare, what is your favorite play, and your favorite, what's your favorite. Um, uh, what's your favorite uh, What's your favorite hamlet adaptation and he said the one directed by kenneth brenner because uh, he managed to stay true to the text while also showing the, that the prince of denmark is struggling between life and death so i, mean, I think it's just fascinating so um we can share a link uh, where you can find out more information you can talk and ask questions to those uh, fascinating individuals i think that's just so so fascinating there was by the way also a person who uploaded his whole diary of 10 years and it took him a few hours to do to ai and then then said analyze what makes me happy in life and some really interesting things came out and uh and so we can all be happier thanks to ai i mean i'm just i'm just flabbergasted i am i'm so excited and also another person who uploaded an hour interview that he had another interview but a session he had with a psychologist and also analysis so i mean I, i think ai is just Brilliant. So I recommend AI in general, and not just AI, but just to read up on this and read all the stories and test it. And it's just fascinating stuff. And apart from that language, I recommend language, learn languages. And to do that, if you don't want to go to a course or whatever, go learn and do Duolingo. I'm on my 160th day of Duolingo, two languages and mostly French because I live in Belgium. (laughs) <laughs> and I speak two of the languages in Belgium, uh, actually three, uh, English, French, and English, uh, German, and Dutch. But French is always a bit rusty, so Duolingo is really, really helping me with that. They're very good because I'm very competitive, so every day it's telling me, you can get more points, So it's a very nice system, and I, I want to get more points, and I want to win against the other people, which I think are completely fake, but it's still working. Uh, it's just how my brain works. So I think it's a brilliant system if you want to learn languages and never being able to pull through. So Duolingo, by the way, it has Yiddish, it has Latin, it has, my friend is doing Mandarin, simplifying Mandarin, and she's sending me all these messages I don't understand. So now I want to do Mandarin just to keep up with her. So it's a brilliant system. And I know that Michena and Phil are doing German just to be able to speak with me in German. So Duolingo is my recommendation for the week. So thank you for
0: Thank you. So yeah, I, I'm also doing Duolingo German, Hindi, and um, Latin, but Latin, I, I'm not sure. The, the real question I mean, I, I love doing it, it's quite fun, it's gamified. Uh, and, whichever you can do it, just like a very small streak every day, just to keep yeah. the habit going without it being a, a huge uh, time commitment. I don't know how many hours it's taking from the today. But, whichever,
2: um, <laughs> I do it in the morning because then you get yeah. a bonus, like you get more points in the evening. That's true. You
0: know? <laughs> but, You know, could do it at 5 a.m. for like a Saturday I do quarter to six and then after fresh.
2: seven because you have a special mm-hmm. bonus hour between seven and eight. I, I am totally gamified. Yeah. Now, but but are, already doing it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm just not as the, at 160 days.
0: <laughs> um, now, I think the challenge, by the way, with Duolingo is to put it in practice because unless you're practicing it, I think it can be a little disconnected from the actual mm-hmm. language skill. And that's what people have been saying so i think it's useful but as a, a supplementary uh, activity uh, my my recommendation is actually a book by uh, daniel gilbert called stumbling on happiness it's a uh, he's a, a harvard psychologist um, with a very interesting analysis of human behavior cognitive biases so it's not a kind of you know how, how to be happy book but it's more how does our brain uh, confuse certain things uh, how are certain biases making us make us think that certain behaviors make us happy when in fact they, they, they don't. There's a bit of uh, Daniel Kahneman uh, thinking fast and slow. So basically the experiencing self and the uh, remembering self, that's one of my favorite uh, metaphors, something to think about when you go on holiday. Is the experience more important than the memory that you're going to have? Uh, big question. You can Google it and find out more. So uh, I think that's all we have time for. Uh, so, Leora, sorry, you wanted.
2: Just to make it a little more concrete, next year, we're going to have an episode completely in German between the three of us. Yeah. That and <laughs> live. Auf Deutsch. Wir machen das. Wir schaffen das. Wir yeah. schaffen das. Yeah. So, yeah. we're going to in Hindi as well. On uh... Hindi? Well, yeah. no, well, Hindi. Hindi? No, no, no.
0: The Hindi one, yeah. Let's go crazy <laughs> with the Hingo. Uh, but, uh, yeah, good idea. I think we'll take a bit more practice. Uh, <laughs> But in the meet- short
2: episode two minutes
0: absolutely <laughs> so have a have a fabulous uh, weekend Jenna, thank you so much for being with us today it was very interesting let's continue that conversation online and um let's uh, enjoy the weekend so thank you very much everybody have a great weekend bye bye
2: <laughs> you. <laughs>